Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 14. Episode 14 of Shut Up and Wrestle, and my special guest this week is a fellow wrestling biographer, uh, Mr. Stephen Bell, author of the book Dynamite and Davy. The Explosive Lives of the British Bulldogs. And we'll get to that in just a minute. We'll get to the conversation that we had. Uh, before I get to that, I want to talk a little bit about some goings-on regarding my book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, my biography of Ed Farhat, the original Sheik. Just a couple of things. Um, and one thing about that, and then one thing about the podcast itself, which is kind of exciting. Just wanted to mention that I had a really great time uh, last weekend, actually, by the time you listen to this, it's probably going to be a little further in the past than that, but about a week and a half ago at the Wrestling Classic 2 uh, Wrestling Convention and Autograph Signing Show up in Windsor Locks, Connecticut, about an hour north from where I live, and I was honored to uh, be invited there by Nicholas Mashey, who runs the convention, so a big shout out to him and a big thank you. I was signing and selling copies of my book there, and it went very well. I was very happy to meet people in person, shake their hands, sell them a copy of my book, and you know, it was kind of a flattering and humbling experience too, because it was really the first uh, independent kind of book signing that I've done so far. Um, got to hang out with Doink the Clown and Dink the Clown, so that was kind of nice. Uh, Jay Lethal was there, and uh, Johnny Gargano, Velvet Sky, Jeff Jarrett, Ron Simmons, just a lot of Jake the Snake, Tully Blanchard. Uh, Dr. D, David Schultz was in the house. It was a pretty cool time, and um, I had a blast, and I'm looking forward to doing more um, autograph signings and book signings in the future. Uh, I've got some things planned on that front. So I will be letting you guys know when that stuff is coming to pass. Um, also want to mention right now, I know I've talked about um, that I am selling uh, personalized autographed copies of the book, Blood and Fire. Um, just wanted to let you know at the moment, I am out of stock in uh, copies of the book. They're going so fast, I can't even keep them in my own home, let alone in the Amazon warehouse. Um, so I'm going to be getting some more copies of the book in, of course, and I'll be signing them for you, anyone that's interested. But for the moment, I am uh, I am plumb out of copies. However, on the good news front, I have uh, taken note of the fact that barnesandnoble.com is now in stock of the physical book itself. So if you want that actual real book that you can hold in your hands, which Amazon at the moment is still uh, temporarily out of stock of, um, go to barnesandnoble.com and get it there. Of course, if the PDF copy is fine by you, the digital you know, Kindle edition, those will never sell out, so you can get those anytime you want. Okay, 
Moving right along, big news on the podcast front, Shut Up and Wrestle front. want to let you know that I have gone and created a Facebook group for the, for the ever-growing Shut Up and Wrestle community. That's right. There is now a Shut Up and Wrestle community, and it's growing. And if you want to be a part of it, join the Facebook group. You know, I kind of set it up for discussion of topics related to the show, discussion of guests, you know, uh, uh, maybe discussion of the book and also extra content that uh, doesn't really fit on the show that I can post to a Facebook group for you guys to check out. Like I recently posted a link to the Milton Berle episode of Saturday Night Live that I discussed with David Marquez on uh, our recent episode uh, that I had with him. And, um, you know, I recently posted a little clip of Bobby Heenan and the Machines from the WWF back in the 80s, because, of course, uh, Denny Burkholder and I talked about that uh, on last week's edition of Shut Up and Wrestle. So anyway, if that kind of stuff is to your liking, just go to Facebook and search Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. You'll find the Facebook group. Join up and have fun with the rest of the cool kids. But for now, we are going to get to a very cool interview that I recently did with Stephen Bell. He is a UK author. And uh, really, this conversation so much fun because it turned into so much more than just the British Bulldogs, just uh, Dynamite Kid and Davy Boy Smith. It wound up being a whole conversation on the history of wrestling in the United Kingdom. So, uh, you know, and that's an area that I'm always curious to learn more about. I hope you are, too. Uh, so without further ado, I am going to take you to that conversation right now. Okay, so uh, today and this week on the podcast, I would like to welcome someone that I can uh, proudly call a fellow wrestling author, a fellow wrestling biographer. Of course, as I've been talking about ad nauseum, my biography of The Sheik just came out. And uh, this gentleman who's on my show this week, he wrote the book on the British Bulldogs. It is called Dynamite and Davy: The Explosive Lives of the British Bulldogs. And uh, it's currently available in the UK. It will be available in the US and Canada in the summer, July 1st. And his name is Stephen Bell. So, Stephen, thank you for coming on Shut Up and Wrestle. No, thank you for having me, Brian. And congratulations right back at you. Great. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we, we had a party, a book release party, as I'm recording this um, last night. So uh, I may be slightly hung over but we'll we'll be okay we'll do it but you know i wanted to mention something in the intro and i, I didn't so i'm going to say it now but why, why i another reason why i really wanted to do this conversation and talk about this book is that I, i've often held you know when people talk about greatest tag team of all time and all this how can you really measure that you know there's so many different uh criteria you can go by but i think if you're talking working in the ring uh, actually in the ring, bell to bell in terms, especially in the history of WWE, my pick is always the British Bulldogs in that category. They were just so ahead of their time and beautiful to watch even today. Yeah, uh, I obviously absolutely agree. Um, I think the criteria is, as you say, is so wide ranging that you can take into account with that. Um, but I think ultimately it's a bit like, um, it's a bit like talking about, rock bands for example um 
you can't just judge everybody by today's standards. So you, you, the Beatles would still be regarded as probably the greatest of all time. And that's where I sort of feel the Bulldogs fit in. You know, you, any anybody who uh, hasn't seen much of the Bulldogs could easily just see some clips and then see clips of the Young Bucks or something like that and say, well, they're doing it. Well, yeah, but they're doing it four years later. They wouldn't be doing it without the Bulldogs. Um, and I think it had a... A genuineness to it, a realness to it, because they'd grown up together, because they trained together, trained in the exact same environment, uh, been through the same things. I think that transcended into the ring, uh, and it, it had this gritty feel while still being high-flying, free-flowing, revolutionary. And yeah, I don't think tag, I don't think wrestling would be where it is now without them. I certainly don't think tag team wrestling would be where it is. Yeah, because I mean. A couple of things. They were that classic ideal of a tag team, I always feel, which is where I always prefer the teams where both guys are not identical. You know, they 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 don't have the same exact style. Like you mentioned, the Young Bucks, and I feel like they're that kind of a tag team where, where they're they're very similar in look and style. But the Bulldogs were more like, of course, the other team that comes to mind is the Bulldogs' great rival, the Hart Foundation, where you've got the one guy who's the technician – you know, he's the technical wrestler. He's the one that is 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 really quick. And then you've got the other guy that's the he's the muscle of the team. He's the big guy. He's the powerhouse. But I think the Bulldogs, even more than the Hart Foundation, were interesting to me because even Davy Boy, who was the muscle, who was the powerhouse, he also was technically very good i would venture to say more than say jim neidhart was who was more just like a pure brawler you know yeah i think you're i think you're rather understating that there i, I, I don't think david can even be compared with jim neidhart that's no offense to jim neidhart whatsoever um i think a lot of mainstream viewers purely know davy as a powerhouse type performer and um so when i first started talking about the bulldogs there i i, I because that I've done and things that I've watched and seen and people I've talked to. Um, the people who knew Davey from before the mainstream era don't really, it's not It's not the powerhouse Davey that comes to mind to them straight away. Uh, he, he was, he was a, a bit of a high flyer in himself, certainly technically sound, um, very akin to what Owen Hart was probably in the mid to late 90s, uh, you know, where he had... Uh, so the, the European and Japanese styles were very much integrated into what it did. Um, and it was only because of what the WWF wanted at the time in that early to mid-90s that David sort of transferred over that way. He was naturally a bigger man. Mm. So uh, when they started, obviously, okay, I'm, sure, I'm sure the word steroids will come into this discussion at some point, but uh, when, this, when they went down that route and wanted to um, compete with the bigger men, David's body grew... A lot more naturally than Tom's did. Davis' strength grew a lot more naturally than Tom's did. It uh, was, was just a naturally quite a bigger man, even though he wasn't that much taller, just na- different stature. And so, yeah, he naturally became that powerhouse, as you say. But for a period of time there, uh, the mid to late 80s, uh, they were absolutely revol- revolutionary. Is that it was uh, partly stumbled across by them because, as I say, they, they were both st- still evolving themselves as performers, the bodies were still evolving. Um, but they came across this uh, perfect little moment where Davey was this 
powerhouse that still had that supreme athletic ability and Dynamite was Dynamite at that point in the middle mid to late 90s. There's a good chance that he was the best in-ring performer in the world. Uh, and yeah, as a, as a tag team, that the, the singles division still hadn't opened up to the smaller man. So the ice they could probably get was as they performed as a tag team. Uh, and they made the most of it and became everything that they, they deserved to be. And, you know, speaking of Tom, uh, Dynamite Kid, like you're saying, he was a naturally smaller man and he didn't have that natural size that that Davey had. So, I, you know, and, I, and I've seen guys like that, even from working for WWE. And when you see there, well, I mean, people like Benoit, of course, comes to mind, but even Eddie Guerrero, guys that are just they're smaller men and they sometimes struggle with trying to pack all this mass on their bodies that doesn't really naturally belong there. And it winds up hurting them. I think sometimes it hurts the smaller guys more than the bigger guys because their bodies just aren't built to carry that kind of mass. Right. Absolutely. And that were a problem with uh, the, the two parts of the body that, that has the biggest effect on uh, is the, the back and the knees and uh Tom's back, as we all know, blew out. He ended up in a wheelchair, um, blew out many, many times, and he was living through it, performing through it, performing at an unbelievable standard through it uh, until it finally gave out once too many. Uh, Davey had back trouble all his career, um, similar to Tom, but what he also had was serious, serious knee trouble, and what the WWF did in the late 90s was... Uh, bring that into storyline you know if you look at the uh, one night only pay-per-view here in the UK uh, when David lost his European title to Sean that knee brace was on legitimately that that knee brace was very much needed and they worked that into the into the program where Sean uh, helped by his comrades worked on the knee and it was art imitating life and it flipped 180 and they actually did some more damage to that knee. Uh, so yeah, uh, the the bodies were designed to probably carry 200 pound maximum, and mm. the wall uh, David got up to 270, 280 pound. Uh, his, his biggest, as you say, they they felt like they needed to do that at the time to to reach the heights. They probably were right because of the stigmas attached with wrestling at the time that you needed to be a bigger man. Um, and you know they had paychecks to bring on for the families, and so they took them. Um, Took what they need, did what they needed to do to to get to the highest point they could in the business. Yeah, and and you know it, it's kind of like when you have guys that are doing that to themselves. Like, well, for example, with Dynamite, despite his smaller size and and all that, you know, he wound up becoming. And I'm not. This isn't me coming up with this, but Dave Meltzer and other people have said this that he almost kind of invented the modern style of working like, like what, what really went mainstream in the nineties, like say with, with Bret Hart and, and, and that kind of thing that like really, especially in American wrestling and especially in mainstream American wrestling, that quick, hard hitting, really fast type of high flying stuff. Um, he's kind of the origin of it, you know, but he paid the price for it. He absolutely is, and once when you've done the amount of research that I've done into his his career and his life, and then when things transcended beyond him into other people, as you say, Brett and Owen and Benoit, 
um, where it went on from there, your Jerichos, people like that. Um, you can follow it as a pure lineage. Um, and it, I do think the origin of it is with Tom and the not only the type of form he was, but the type of person he was, because he was a really tough man. Um, he really, really disliked any form of wrestling that looked phony or looked, you know, he wanted it to look as real as possible. Uh, and that was his ultimate goal, whilst also performing at the highest level. At school, uh, in his, in his schoolboy years, he, he was, uh, he excelled at gymnastics. So as well as being sort of this scrappy, young fighting man, uh, fighting lad, teenager, uh, he excelled at gymnastics, excelled at other sports, soccer, rugby, and so when he stumbled across professional wrestling, when he happened to bump into Ted Bentley completely randomly, uh, who invited him to, to train his gym, pro wrestling turned out to be this uh, perfect thing that combined all his natural talents, this, this urge to be a bit scrappy and a bit of a fighter, but also the gymnastics, the sporting ability, the competition. And so at the age of just sort of 14, 15, you were already excelling and were obsessed with being the best and becoming the best. And so he did. And so then when you, when he sort of reached the the top of the pyramid in UK wrestling, by the time we were 18, um, I'd nowhere else left to go. And that's when Bruce Hart discovered him and took him over to Canada. He, he wouldn't change what he were doing for anything, but he was still evolving as a person. He's still only a teenager evolving as a person, his body's still evolving. And so he carried that style and over there, this, uh, technically brilliant, fast-flowing, hard-hitting style. And meanwhile, you'd got all the young heart boys looking up, thinking, wow, who have we got here? And Brett uh, has openly said multiple times in his book, uh, in various interviews, that that was what inspired him for his own style more than anybody else. You can see it even more so in Owen, um, Davey especially. And, and yeah, it just... It just spread like wildfire, did this style as Tom travelled the world, um, people competing with him, and then uh, a serendipitous moment when uh, they put him in the ring with Tiger Mask. Right. Shared that same sort of style, that same sort of energy. Uh, and yeah, by then, it, it had blown up, and that's what everybody wanted to do. That was the type of wrestling that everybody uh, wanted to watch and wanted to compete in. Uh, and yeah, so then, follow on five, ten years later, you've got what you've got. You've got Jushin Thunder Liger, you, you've got Rey Mysterio, you've got Chris Benoit, you've got Eddie Guerrero. Uh, and yeah, I don't think we would have got there without Tom. And I think, um, you know, that that um, that Tiger Mask match that you mentioned, I mean, well, they had a bunch of them, but I mean, the, the, the one at Madison Square Garden is such a big deal. And I know, you know, I was around back then, but I was I was not really into wrestling yet. And but I've known people that were there. And it was like this crazy thing. It was like if people sometimes wonder, oh, imagine if you got a time machine and you sent like Daniel Bryan and CM Punk or whatever it is. You sent those guys back 40 years and put them in front of a crowd. Like what reaction would that crowd have? It would be this culture shock of, oh, my God, what are these guys doing? That's what that match was. It was like they came from the future. And and here they are in Madison Square Garden, which, which at the time, I mean, even though Bob Backlund was the champion, very athletic champion, but WWF and, and, and mainstream American wrestling, a lot of it was known for the big brawlers, the slow moving, slower moving guys, and just a totally different kind of working. This the, It was the kind of working where you did everything very methodically because you wanted it to register. 
and it was the Greg Valentine style and where, where guys were afraid if they were too fast, that everything would go over people's heads. And here you have these two guys and the crowd. It's the most entertaining part of the show. They're losing their minds at this thing, right? Not to start with, though, that's the thing. It's so amazing to watch. I wouldn't urge anybody to go and watch it. So uh, Dynamite and Tiger Mask had already had some electric matches in Japan, but obviously we're talking kayfabe era, pre-internet era, well before the pre-internet era. Dave Meltzer was actually just starting up uh, his wrestling observer at that point. So the territory system worked perfectly. Nobody sort of interacted with each other. Nobody talked to each other at that exact point. Davey and Dynamite were getting away with being tag team partners in one continent and Arch enemies in another. Um, you could get away with that sort of stuff back then. So uh, the crowd at Madison Square Garden that day had no idea that Tom and Tiger Mask had already wrestled a bunch of times. Vince had brought him in to have a look at him. He heard about this uh, stir that was being caused uh, in Japan by Tom and Dave, is it Tom and Tiger Mask matches. Brought him in just to fill a spot, really, and have a quick look at them particularly Tiger Mask. Um, and so it's it's almost treated when this match is introduced by Mean Gene, uh, it's almost treated as a little bit of a... Um, sorry, not by Mean Gene. Uh, it's almost treated as a little bit of a intermission. Right, that's true. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was it, sort of it, like a filler. Your Backlands were on that show, your Pedro Morales and like Big John Stud and the crowd are almost waiting for these big guys to come out. Um, and so is these two guys that they're observed of. And so they get introduced and there's just no reaction whatsoever as they're introduced. They've only been given seven minutes. They've got, they sort of did seven and a half minute. They've got all the, all the spots. They crammed them all in these. They've been having 20, 25 minute matches in Japan. They crammed all the spots sort of into a seven, seven and a half minute match. And within, Within one minute of the crowd, you can see them, they're stood up talking to each other. Some of them are going, uh, walking to the bar, to the concession stand. So within one minute, there is not one eye that's not glued on the ring. Uh, within two minutes, they're all off the seat. Within three minutes, they're all cheering. Uh, and you can tell they've absolutely stole the show in just a seven-minute cameo. And um, I've heard I've heard sort of Becky Lynch talk about that. Yes. They, they, they still show that match. It's one of the first matches they get showed at wrestling school. Uh, and like I said, for, for it just to be at the time, a bit of filler, a bit of an intermission filler. And, uh, and that, yeah, the, the really, I mean, that's 40 years ago now. And it's still almost used as the uh, benchmark for smaller wrestlers and what they should be doing. Yeah. And, you know, part of that, like you said, it, w- it was kind of like a filler treated that way. Uh- the, the pecking order, right, of the matches and the stars, it was much more rigid back then where people were not used to, you know, you had your opening match, curtain jerkers, opening matches of shows back then were nothing to write home about. It was just a warm up. You had your mid carters and everything was building to that main event. Every and, and really all the stops would be pulled out in those last couple of matches. And so you didn't have like what you have today where, you'd have guys on the mid card that are like sometimes the most popular people on the show or like the, you know, the serious wrestling fans are, well, I don't really care about that main event, but this is the match I want to see between these two guys. Like that wasn't as common back then, you know, they, they, they tried to save everything for the end of the show. So, so people weren't used to this idea of, uh, of these guys coming out in the middle of the show, especially 
and I say this as a caveat, but especially on a WWF card, they were not treated that way. And so it kind of came out of nowhere. Like I had another experience and it's somewhat related because I was a kid. I started watching wrestling a couple of years after that WWF. And that's when they brought, they had brought in the jumping bomb angels from all Japan women. And, you know, there was that same phenomenon going over happening over there that would, that also gave rise to, you know, Davey and dynamite being allowed to do work the way that they wanted, where these women were doing insane things that even men weren't trying to do. I mean, they were outshining the men in a lot of ways. And like other people have said that at that particular time in the best workers in the world were women. They were the women of all Japan women. And so when the jumping bomb angels came to the WWF as a 12 year old, I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that how could it be possible that these two little Japanese women they seem like they're better wrestlers than anybody on the entire show. They seem like they're better than Hulk Hogan. They're better than Randy Savage. They're better than, than, than the junkyard dog. They're, they're better than everybody. Like, how is this possible? And why aren't they in the main event? You know, like my 12 year old brain didn't really understand how the business worked back then. And you could imagine, and I'm, I don't know if you came across this in researching the book that they would have to be, uh, higher level stars, main eventers and things that were not happy about that, that didn't want these guys stealing the show and doing and showing everything they could do because it would make them look bad. Right. I mean, did that happen a lot? I had one particular example where Davey was um, admonished for um, being in the opening match and um, performing in a way that nobody could follow. Um, it was a, it was a event in, in Calgary, um, and quite quite a big event, and the I'm not sure if it was New Japan or All Japan bookers were there at the time watching, and it were almost like deemed a bit of a tryout. And David performed exceptionally in the in the opening match, and um, behind the scenes, people were happy about it because they thought, well, it's just took some gloss off me and what I wanted to do later, because uh, David at that point, as a sort of 19 year old, um, he was a uh, it were a walking high spot, you know, he could do everything in terms of um, high-flying, mat work, st- and still had that natural power. Uh, and yeah, he almost had his wings clipped a little bit, but his natural ability shone through. And so he didn't he didn't open any more matches after that, you know, and he, he quickly moved up the card. So it's getting that balance right, I suppose, between um, knowing your place on a card, but also still trying to push yourself to your limits where you're going to climb higher up it. It's, it's part of the business. And it also seems to have been, especially going back to their origins on the British scene. And, you know, I'll freely admit that that's an area of wrestling history that I really, really know that I need to learn more about that is not as widely disseminated here in America. Like we, we, you know, we, we know about Mexico, we know about Japan, of course. And I feel like the UK, there needs to be more done. And this books like this are definitely in the right direction, but my perception and correct me if I'm wrong is that they kind of almost represented a whole new wave of wrestling over there because I think of big daddy, you know, before them, I think of big guys. And I know it wasn't just that, obviously you had people that were working, you know, a, a, a more hard hitting style, obviously the snake pit and all that kind of thing. But in terms of mainstream British wrestling, I almost feel like, it was similar to the American thing where you just had, you had these big 
popular guys that really didn't do all that much. And then all of a sudden it was, you know, a new generation. Is that, am I oversimplifying that? I, slightly, Brian, you know, only because um, I don't, I, again, it, it's difficult to know what anybody knows or doesn't know. And it's, you'll come across that in your book. You, you, you almost feel, I felt at times, because I, I do feel like this book transcends a little bit just the wrestling genre. You know, it's a it's a human story. It's got triumph and tragedy and, and all that kind of thing. But you also know that your main audience is probably going to be a wrestling audience and you don't want to oversimplify it for them. You don't want, or you don't want to appear almost patronising to them. But at the same time, I'm also wanting to appeal to a market that, that doesn't know an awful lot about professional wrestling that professional wrestling fans will take for granted. Uh, and yet in, in the UK... Um, what happened where it was naturally, I think even more than anywhere else, going back to the 50s and 60s and even before that, uh, kayfabe was so adhered to, to the point where uh, a lot of time you didn't have baby faces and eels. You know, the, the matches were started as a completely legitimate sporting contest and, you, you know, two quite gentlemanly competitors would go and shake hands and do a little bow and a little curtsy in the middle of the ring and it would be purely uh, presented as a uh, legitimate sporting contest. Uh, and then as the years went on, obviously a little bit more gamesmanship, a little bit more showmanship came in as it did everywhere else. But I think British wrestling was slightly behind the times with that. And then because Max Crabtree, the brother of Shirley Crabtree, Big Daddy, because he was the main promoter for joint promotions um, and his brother was this sort of larger than life character. It also got giant a stacks uh, who would come over to uh, the US and Canada as Loch Ness Monster. Um, because it got these two um, larger than life characters who could just generate so much heat um, to start with both as heels and as a heel tag team. He threw them straight in as the main event and then eventually did a turn where Shirley turned face, turned into the big daddy that we all know. But everybody below that on the card was mm. still this sort of very legitimate style, very, very hard in style. So the, the the general perception, because of the headline acts that everybody knows of from the 70s and 80s, um, with Kendo Nakasaki also being uh, around there, is this almost cartoonish kind of style. People think that that's all that British wrestling were at the time, but it was what, um, what it was based upon was actually more legit than anywhere else. So you had this... Um, very strange scenario where an audience would watch four or five extremely serious legitimate matches and then Big Shirley and Giant A-Stacks would come out and do uh, belly butts for 30 seconds and then Giant A-Stacks would fall out of the ring and not be able to get back in and get counted out and everybody would go on happy. So, yeah, it did almost uh, manipulate the perception of what British wrestling were at the time. What had happened was um, in the north of England, there were a big disparity between the north of England and the south of England at the time. And in the north of England, where it's all very much mining towns, I'm from a northern mining town, just like Dynamite and Davy were, we share sort of a heritage. We're only 45, our own towns are sort of 45 minutes apart in the car. Um, it's very, very gritty, very, it were very male or orientated uh, heritage back then. And uh, there were fighting men, it was rugby and towns were very much built upon tough guys and and so when professional wrestling came around and um, post-world war ii uh, the catch as catch can 
legitimate wrestling style was running alongside it. And these were legitimate options for as hobbies and even for the best professions for these guys who earn very little working down the mines. And so when when more money and more money and more money became in professional wrestling, when in 1955 um, a television syndication was offered to joint promotions, you got less and less of the legitimate catches catch on style and more and more turn to professional wrestling. And so it went that way. And that's why you generated this very, very real style for such a long time. Uh, and Ted Bentley was one of them competing as Dr. Death in the fifties and sixties, then retired and opened a gym. And in 1971, he bumped into a 13 year old Tom Billington. And that's where it all started. That's so interesting because the, you know, the trajectory that you're describing is kind of what happened in the United States, except almost a hundred years earlier, where, you know, it was that coming out of like the civil war here and, and, and wrestling kind of emerging almost at the same time that baseball was emerging as something as uh, forming from a pastime into a business. And at the, at the beginning, a very small business and a very kind of, you know, small time back alley kind of business where you'd have matches in the back of bars or out in a field somewhere or by a train station, you know, and it did start out that way where people were killing each other, you know, and, and then slowly but surely as there's more money to be made, the work starts to come in. And in the beginning, it's a work in the sense that this is not entertainment. This is just people trying to, con you out of money by making you think this is a real you know what i mean it's really it starts out like a fixed sport pro wrestling does and then it actually becomes the point where we are entertaining you. you you know what i mean we we know that you don't think that what we're doing is genuine but you're still here and you're giving us your money and we're going to make it as realistic as we can which is a very different kind of thing it is very different. And the reason that I know a little bit more about that trajectory from a British wrestling point of view is because uh, in my last book before Dynamite and Davey, it was the biography of um, a, a local hero of ours. I'm from the town of Uddersfield uh, in West Yorkshire and um, a, a local hero of ours is Douglas Clark. Douglas Clark was um, one of the pioneers of uh, the English sport of rugby league. And then when World War One, that's how far we're going back, when World War One hit, uh, he, he was one of the best rugby league players in the world. Uh, but he got drafted into World War One, became a genuine bona fide war hero um, to the point where, you know, like if you've seen the film uh, Axel Ridge, it were, like, were like Britain's version of Axel Ridge because he'd got this huge strength from his rugby career, uh, but he was very much against violence. He it would, it would just run into war zones and into the trenches and uh, scoop up men on his shoulders and drag them out and it saved people say that you don't know a, a countless amount of lives the dog's just ruining things <laughs> that's okay my dog does that too from time to time <laughs> uh, and so when he, he he got literally blown up twice in world war one um full of shrapnel and came back got told that he could live a relatively normal life but he could never do anything strenuous, physically strenuous, um, sat around for a few months and decided that was boring. So he got into, he went back to his rugby league career, had like sort of a second 
Rugby League Hall of Fame career after he'd been told that he should never compete again. Uh, but then when he finally did hang his boots up in 1930, it was also the um, it was a style of wrestling called, a very, very legitimate style of wrestling called Cumberland and Westmoreland, uh, yes. which is in the... Uh, generates from the northwest part of England where he was from. He was the local champion at that. And because he built up this level of celebrity, his story had transcended rugby league because of his war hero. Uh, so when in 1930, when what they called Hall All In Wrestling came to these shores, which was professional wrestling dressed up as a very legitimate sport, uh, he entered a tournament and was introduced to pro wrestling. And straight away, they saw what a natural talent he had, what natural strength he had. And they put the British heavyweight title on him straight away. He went on to hold that for 10 years. He held a version of the world heavyweight title. And he held it all the way up pretty much up to... Um... Oh, go on. You'll know the name. Jack. Jack, Jack, Jack. American, American... It'll come to me. Uh, eventually beat him for that title in sort of 1940, 1941. He hung his wrestling boots up then. And... Um... World War II it. So then you'd got this situation where pro wrestling had been this big, huge um, thing that had been introduced to, to the UK, particularly the North, because of Douglas Clark being the leading light of it. And it all got brought to a halt because of World War II. So when it started back up, it was sort of gritty, underground, uh, and you see all these legitimate styles, such as Cumberland and Westmoreland that Douglas Clark did, uh, the Lancashire Catchers Catch Can, all these things came together to, to generate this ultra legitimate style, uh, but under, that was to the naked eye. Nobody would believe it was a work style. Right. I've even, some, um, I've even seen some clips of Douglas Clark in action from the 1930s, really uh, grainy black and white TV. And you, it's so fast, so hard it is. These are big, big men. Um, such an entertaining watch. And yet it's worked and you would never believe it would work just to the naked eye. Right, right. Uh, and so when so when TV came along in the 50s and 60s, that's where it sort of evolved and that sort of picks up from my last uh, segment. That's interesting. And and the working, you know, the, that style where um, you're, it's a worked match, but basically what you're doing is you have a predetermined outcome, but you're having more mm. or less a legitimate match i mean you can watch in america for example the 30s is really if you watch clips and things is where you can really see the obvious kind of like pro wrestling working style where it's selling and it's you know kind of like exaggerated moves and things that you would never really do in a shoot fight but if you go before that like there's matches from the teens and 20s and there works but it just looks like a shoot fight. And part of that is that it's kind of boring to watch because it's two guys just on top of each other for hours. Sometimes, you know, sometimes hardly moving, but they are um, still working, but they're working in a way that they really and truly want to make sure that nobody knows that it's a work. And by that, I mean, it's not just the fans because wrestling fans, there was this idea that, well, we can trick wrestling fans, but, but people that aren't wrestling fans, and that don't, we want even them to think that this is real. We want sports writers to think that this is real. And it's it's a lot harder to trick people like that. And that was, you know, 
the earlier style and the Cumberland. And it's funny because the, the Cumberland and Westmoreland and the, and the styles you're describing in American wrestling, you know, those styles over there go back to 18th century, at least even before there was any kind of a wrestling business. And it came here to America that way, where you had a lot of Irish immigrants and British immigrants and Welsh and Scottish people coming here in the 19th century. And they brought it here. And here is where it kind of turned into, of course, a very American thing, right? Here it turned into a major way for people to make money. And then it wound up kind of going everywhere else. So it's this strange kind of twisted evolution globally of pro wrestling. It's so interesting. Well, you talk about you talk about kayfabe. I've actually got a, a, a classic story. I only tell the story because I don't think there's zero possible way that the uh, the lady in question would ever would ever hear this. Um, I went to see during my research for my Douglas Clark book. I went to meet his last surviving relative, um, which was his niece. She was in her eighties and lovely, welcoming. Uh, woman and she she'd curated all his uh, artifacts and uh, newspaper clippings and everything over the years and she'd actually it kept some war diaries and things like that which he's he, actually got his own um, stand at the Imperial War Museum in Manchester um, because his his war story is so fascinating she'd donated a lot of the stuff to them but she'd kept most of his sporting uh, attire and memorabilia and medals and and um, I went down there and she laid on a bit of a spread for me, some sandwiches and drinks. And uh, she laid out all his, um, all his artifacts that she wanted me to see. And just in general conversation, I happened to mention, I'm not even sure what the words were, but something along the lines of, you know, professional wrestling. And it wouldn't have been the word fake because I don't use that word, but whatever the word was, it made her go, Oh no, sorry, it weren't even me that instigated it. It was her that started talking about the wrestling side of him after she talked about the rugby and when it's not like all them now, all them, and it were her that said the word fake. And straight away I thought, oh, I've got a bit of a problem here. Um, because <laughs> I knew what I knew. And and I went, well, and I sort of danced around the subject a little bit, and she went suddenly very serious and went, No, no, no. Uncle Douglas would never ever take part in anything like that. And I went, oh. Right. So, uh, I mean, if anybody reads my book now, I ended up deciding partly, I think it might have been partly inspired by that, but also separately as well, just because it, it, it kept a lot of um, memoirs and things that I had to um, reference, but it never, ever said anything or written anything down about pro wrestling, understandably, because of kayfabe and how absolute it was at the time. And so um, I ended up writing the book in kayfabe. So um, it were quite an interesting thing to do was that because that's all I had to go. So I thought, well, go on then. I'll respect his wishes and sort of uh, write it from his point of view. Um, But yeah, the the moment that I realised that this this lady in her 80s was so like switched on, so smart, so lucid. She told me all about her own life as a nurse and her own war memories, her own memories of her uncle Douglas suddenly would not have for a second that uh, he, he took part in worked matches. And that is how close she even told me a story about uh, 
antsy as it would have been, Douglas Clark's wife telling her a story uh, about when he uh, kicked some unscrupulous individuals out of the house who came and offered him a backhander to, to throw a match. She went, so I know he would never do that because I got told this story. And I'm like, wow, that was the lens that he was going to. I mean, he, who knows, he might have invented that story to throw him off the scent. I don't know, but I just thought that was so fascinating at the time. Yeah, I mean, they worked their families. There yeah. were guys worked their their wives, their children. Yeah. You know, there's the story that was on Dark Side of the Ring with the, the Grizzly Smith episode where Jake the Snake is talking about, you know, that was his dad. And he's a little kid and with his brothers and sisters and they're watching on television as these guys are threatening to kill their father, you know, and they're terrified and he will not explain to them the reality of it. And he keeps them in the dark despite that. But but I mean, people went to these extreme lengths. And I feel like in those days, too, especially when you were trying to hide that because you figured your business would die and you'd also get in a lot of trouble. Maybe if the truth came out, I feel like in those early, early days, maybe over there too, but definitely in the U S it was like boxing and wrestling. They diverged in two different directions and, you know, they were both very dirty. There were a lot of fixes. They were very, uh, a lot of unscrupulous stuff going on, especially in the early, early days. And it's like, wrestling took this path like boxing kind of cleaned itself up somewhat and and went the route of being continuing to be a genuine sport and wrestling just embraced the worked part and the corruption because that's what it was in the beginning so deeply and fully that it just turned into something different it, it turned completely into a show where you know the original idea of what it was is is gone now you know yeah, and I would, um, I, I would love to get in a time capsule and go back to the days when. But I'm not sure what at I'd like to wear when I when I'm watching the shows. If I went to some shows, just random shows anywhere in the world from the 60s and 70s, when that was the case, when it was uh, clearly to the to the all knowing eye, clearly work, but well done enough so that you didn't know. I'm not sure whether I'd like to go there genuinely, genuinely not knowing and just genuinely enjoy it with a complete suspension of disbelief or whether I'd like to go back there knowing what I know and seeing if I could work <laughs> out the sleight of hand. How but did they do way, it? Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. It's what, I think it's what I became so fascinated about with in my sort of teenage years after the, uh, well, during the Attitude Era, that's what sort of pulled me back into wrestling in, uh, at that time in my life. But then when sort of Mick Foley released his book, Dynamite had released his book as well. And um, What a great book that is. Yeah, and, and I just got, over the course of a year or two, uh, at the beginning of the well, turn of the century, I suppose, um, I just became more fascinated by the uh, off-screen history and the off-screen antics than I was with what was going on. And that sort of carried on ever since, really. That's that's such a good point. I, you know, I found at a certain point, even though by the Attitude Era, I'd been watching wrestling already for well, probably over a decade, but um, it became so fascinating because that was also when the internet exploded, and you could learn so much about what was going on behind the scenes. Whereas before that, you still could. The Observer would have probably been pretty much your only way of doing that, and 
And a lot of us didn't even really know about it in those days, you know, and, and so that was definitely a turning point. Um, but, you know, I, I want to bring it back to the Bulldogs for a minute yeah. here before we, but, but while we still have some time, because there's something that I wanted to mention and it was on my mind from the beginning is that, um, you know, of course, when you're thinking of the British Bulldogs tag team in, and in the, and especially in the WWF, they're, you know, married to the Hart Foundation in everybody's minds. That's the, the classic tag team feud. And I think sometimes it's easy to forget, because especially when you think about other tag team feuds like Rock and Roll Express and Midnight Express and things like that, that would go on year after year and in different forms, that it, it was a very short window of time. It really uh, was not uh, something that, but it, it's so memorable in people's minds. Like I, I saw them wrestle at Madison Square Garden, my first garden show. I was 12 years old. It was July 1987. And I think it was, it was not billed as the main event, but in those days that on the garden shows, they would put the main event in the middle of the show. And mm-hmm. so that people could go home and get out of the parking lots is kind of a weird way to do it. But but Dynamite and Davy Boy versus Brett and Anvil was the last match on the card. And I don't I'm not I don't know for sure, but I think it might have been the last time they ever wrestled each other at Madison Square Garden. And that was the point where Dynamite was in such rough shape that he he was riding on Davy's shoulders to the ring like he does. I think he does at WrestleMania three. And we didn't realize at the time why we just thought it looked really cool that he's carrying dynamite to the ring. We didn't realize that dynamite can't walk to the ring. That's why he's carrying to the ring, you know? Yeah. Well, that timeline marries up perfectly. So it was at the end of 1986 when his black back blew out altogether in the, uh, in Canada against Don Morocco uh, and Bob Orton. And so then he sort of rushed his comeback to, for the payday at WrestleMania 3, uh, which would have been March, April 1987. So then, yeah, a couple of months later, uh, that is when, is when you saw him. And yeah, he wore in such rough shape. Going back to the feud with the Art Foundation, when you first started that, I thought we were going to talk about something uh, off out, out of the ring and off camera when you said they were married to the Art Foundation because they were <laughs> literally, of course, married to the Art Foundation. That's true. There, There's a double meaning <laughs> uh, there, right? I was but, using uh, it in the uh, wrestling sense, right? Yeah, I think, <laughs> but sim- in a similar way, they went back so far. By that point, they'd already been between five and ten years, depending which of the two individuals you're talking about. They'd already been uh, friends and or family. Uh, obviously, all married, even Jim Nidat was married into the Art family as well and they'd all been competing at such an high level with and against each other, uh, mainly for Stampede in Calgary, but also in Japan. Uh, They they knew each other's uh, personality, knew each other's style absolutely inside out. And they shared a common uh, vision of what wrestling should be, Um, you know, maintaining kayfabe whilst putting on as entertaining a match as you possibly can for the fans and leaving nothing out there and so them matches the reason why they have stood the test of time and are still classed as uh, the the turning point I think for tag team wrestling and when they set that benchmark for tag team wrestling and I as you say, relatively speaking, it's a short space of time, just like maybe 18 months worth of matches on and off Um, I think I think there's some legs left in that yet, and I think that'll still get used for as as the benchmark because of the 
chemistry that were there. I, I don't think that that's something that you can teach. Yeah, and what a moment in time. It, it's a amazing kind of coincidence because I would I don't think it's going too far as to say that if you're talking about the the best working tag teams in WWF and WWE history that they those two teams might be number one and number two, any way you slice it. And the fact that not only were they number one and number two all time in that company, they were feuding with each. They were there at the same time and they were feuding with each other. I mean, that almost never happens when you're talking about all time great whatevers, you know, that they're, they're right there. And in this, they happen to be there in this short span of time working with each other. And I know it didn't just happen that way. Obviously, they were both brought there be, partly because they were connected to each other. But it's an incredible, uh, it was a gift, I think, that maybe we didn't really fully appreciate at the time. Well, no, you, you wouldn't have done. And, and the reason is, obviously, it's not just a coincidence. They they raised each other's game so much throughout all the, the past matches that they'd had together, all the training that they'd done in the dungeon together. And so it's a bit, and also it's a little bit like, um, you know, it's a bit like saying, is it a coincidence that Roger Federer and um, Rafael Nadal came on at, at tennis at the same time, uh, soccer, Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi came on at the same time. Once you get this, uh, these competitive individuals fighting against each other for the top spot, pushing each other as hard as they possibly can, there's only one way that the whole industry can almost go. Uh, and they did raise that bar so much. And what what's a little bit, unfortunate about it because again when you when you focus on those two teams and you could say this about other teams like the rockers or another good example but they're not really connected here but where you've got the one guy who and even though brett went a lot further well i mean i don't know what the uk perspective is i i know how loved davy boy is over there but brett brett seemed to have gone a lot further than davy boy but they both became breakout singles stars whereas in both cases for some similar and some different reasons the other guy did not meaning jim neidhart and meaning dynamite kid now dynamite kid without argument had his best singles years pre-british bulldogs and he never even though in a lot of people's opinions he was an even better worker than Davy Boy. He he never got to have that huge singles career, especially in you know North America, that Davy Boy did. No, uh, but I certainly don't think Tom ever saw it that way. Which is partly to his credit. He never. I don't, I don't think uh, he saw it that way. He saw it as a different point in time. I think. Uh, he certainly sees when you when you see interviews with him and certainly when you read his book, he classes that period of time when he won the, it was called the WWF Junior Heavyweight title, of course, but it was a New Japan title that Sayama and Fujinami had held for all them years before. Almost the best worker in the world held that belt for, for such a long period of time. I think at that point in 1984 when Tom won that belt, I think he classed that as reaching the top of the mountain and reaching the top of the mountain that he could ever reach as a single star right. at that time. Obviously, a decade later, partly due to him, the landscape had changed so much and people like Brett and Davey suddenly could um, win any title that was offer, on offer anywhere around the world. 
it wasn't like that, partly because of the territory system, partly because of the penance for big men and uh, and the there was still almost an element of the belts being weight classed, you know, heavyweight right. and, and like junior heavyweight. And so I, I definitely feel Tom, Tom never felt like he had anything to prove. Uh, he felt like he'd uh, delivered on his singles career when he won that belt along with all the other singles titles that he won. It w- what didn't exist at that time as well was that mainstream exposure that were there in 1992 and 1993, you know, and unfortunately by then Tom was, back where it all began, scratching around in um, smoky bingo halls back in the UK, unfortunately, and Davey wore riding eye. Yeah, and, you know, the 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 business had changed. And it's funny, when you think about it now, in this day and age, you can completely imagine somebody like Dynamite Kid in his prime being absolutely considered a top performer especially let's say aew something like that he would be absolutely at home with guys like brian danielson and and cm punk and you know wrestlers like that he would fit right in and i even think in the wwe too because you know i was working there at the time when that barrier came crashing down where it was seen as uh it's wrestlemania 20 in 2004 was I mean, it's all tainted now, unfortunately, because of everything that happened with Benoit. But um, it was like a changing of the guard moment. That moment, that that famous shot of you have Eddie and you have Benoit. They're both world champions. They're both celebrating in the ring. And you're going, wow, the business really, really has changed. Uh, this would have been unthinkable before. And especially someone like Benoit, who was almost like the clone of dynamite kid. I mean, there are times where you can be watching his matches. And if you squint a little bit, you're not sure which one of them it is. I mean, that's how, that's how similar they were. And that was by design, obviously with Benoit Um, that could have been someone like a dynamite kid, but it just, it was, it was a little too soon for something like that. But again, you could only ever get there. Somebody had to break that glass ceiling to allow it for them. And I do think that was, um, that was Tom at that time, especially, and there's no, as you just said, there's no more direct and obvious way for that to have happened than it to be Benoit, ultimately, who was his protege and um, based everything that he did, uh, as he openly said, on uh, on what Tom had done and Tom matches between Tom and Brett and watching Tom in particular. Well, the reason that Benoit fell in love with wrestling, it's the reason why he trained so hard to be uh, the type of competitor that he was and the type of wrestler that he was, as you say, that'll be forever tainted. And unfortunately it's something that uh, is used in hindsight to beat Tom with, you know, I, I, I think that's very unfair. Um, I but, think so too. Yeah. But it, it's something that people have clung onto because of the stories that they know about the dynamite kid. Um, and yeah, it, it's just, as you say, they were so similar in so many ways that it's easy to draw that conclusion that somehow um, Benoit just, I don't know, went one step further than what Tom were capable of. And I, I just think that's such an unfair conclusion that people have almost taught themselves to believe. Well, he, he wouldn't have been able to do it, obviously, without the, you know, the doors that have been kicked down. And, and you know, those, those things take time to happen. And, and there had been forces that were pushing for it for years. It wasn't like it just happened out of the blue. I mean, there were a lot of people 
that thought that the time had come and 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 that was because people had been doing it before but you know there was um when when the Benoit tragedy happened i remember cnn doing a an exposé thing i think it was called chokehold or something they did a special and if i'm thinking of the same one uh where they really painted uh tom in such a negative light they interviewed him they went to his home if you know what i'm talking about and the message they were trying to send was no wonder Benoit turned out the way he did. Look at the guy that he considered his mentor. Look at this degenerate guy. You know, that was like the message they were trying to send. Yeah, uh, I cover it in the book. Um, mm. And the problem is what they did. Um, Tom was a fantastic heel. Like he, as well as revolutionizing an in-ring style, he partly revolutionized this heel character as well, which he, he sort of embodied... Um, and depending, it would for certain uh, territories, be it Japan or wherever, it would, you know, shave his head and grow a goatee. And, and then he'd got these um, from all the blading that he'd done, he'd got a lot of scars on his head. And uh, he just played the persona so, so well. Uh, his facial expressions and everything, he could look truly, truly demonic. And it were, it were a character that he were playing at the time in the ring. And that CNN documentary took loads of stills, portrayed him in a certain light with a certain music behind it and a certain commentary, deep, a deep voice. You know, this, this is Tom Billington now, it says at one point, you know. Uh, and it almost uses these brilliant eel character that is portrayed to almost tell the viewer that that worry him in real life you know and i think that's again so unfair uh, and because of this the physical state that tom were in at the time but probably also a mental state uh the, i dare say that there was some money involved and he were living in poverty at the time it, it definitely feels like this sort of took advantage of him at that point to to try and uh carry that narrative on that 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 come across well that whole uh that whole cnn thing you can see that they they definitely got an angle that they have chosen you know it's the i forget the name of the of the host but you know he's got this very confrontational style and and he's you know cm punk is in there too and and where cm punk is talking about how he's straight edge and all this and because wwe i guess had put him out there as a way of showing that we've cleaned up our act and there's such hostility even towards CM Punk. I remember the interviewer saying something like, well, what the hell does that mean? What the hell is straight edge? And I'm going, no interviewer would ever talk to anybody this way. Why would you ask your question in that way? in that dismissive, awful way, like you've got your foregone conclusion um, basically painting the this entire business out to be like, oh, well, obviously it produces people that do things like Chris Benoit. I mean, of course, we all know there's issues in the wrestling industry, but um, to, to, to pin that all of that on what happened was, was clearly, there was clearly a vendetta that was going on in that special. Uh, absolutely. It call, it's just sprung to mind as well. It was called Death Grip was the, uh, the Death Grip, that. Death Grip. You know what it was? It, it was not even a vendetta. I guess what I'm trying to say is 
in fair, you know, I'll try to be devil's advocate. They had a narrative to, to put across. It, it was an oversimplification. That's what it was. They yeah. were, you know what, because they're not, they're not totally wrong. I mean, you know, there were a lot of things that happened to Benoit that shouldn't have happened that, that health wise and all this kind of thing. And, and maybe in a better regulated industry wouldn't have happened, but, but they oversimplified things in a way that only people that don't fully understand the wrestling industry would do. Yeah, they sensationalized it to to tell that certain angle of it. You know, you could name, you could begin naming stuff uh, all day long. You know, good stories from wrestling, and you know, all the Make a Wish stuff and everything like that. All the good that wrestling does, but none of that would have played into the hour long special that they wanted to portray. You know, that's that's where it is, and that's where going back to the book, I truly believe that. Touch wood, it's something I've agonised on long and hard about getting the balance so perfect and not appearing to um, have any kind of sort of bias one way or the other. I mean, I'm a big Bulldogs fan and um, a fan of both of them individually. And I feel, I think when you've done that level of research on somebody, you start to get to feel like you knew them as well. And uh, I, I am sort of a huge fan of them as people as well. And so I think that's come across. Um, there were a review that done the other day when it, it was called, uh, it's titled the review, A Love Letter to the British Bulldogs. Now, uh, and he's very positive about it, but, you know, I'm glad it comes across that way because it would have been easy to go down the route of, uh, negativity and mm. um you know all the call all the controversy and stuff i cover all that I cover all that in depth but what i've tried to do is give as much context as possible of where because it's easy to take these things in isolation and not know uh, where they appeared almost in the careers and in the life and the other things that were going on uh, so what i've tried to do is create this story that, that in a chronological chronological order the reader will know exactly what sort of state uh the careers and lives were at that point and what might have influenced uh, some of the negativity and some of the controversy and dispelled some myths uh, and yeah, clarified a few things. Uh, and there's certainly a lot of new stuff in there that people wouldn't have known or read about before. And that's partly to what I went through with the chic book where you've got a human being with good and bad, like anybody else, you know, and you, you have to try to find that balance. I didn't want to write a book that was a hit piece or was going to drag somebody through the mud. It's not that kind of a book. And why, why would I do that? You, you know what I mean? Unless I'm writing a book about somebody whose primary contributions to the world are negative. Well then, okay. I would understand that, but not somebody who just had these flaws and, and where it comes into the story, like, like you were saying is where it's important to the story, you know, where it has, uh, a reason that you don't want to leave it out, you know, like in Sheik's case, his business collapsed for a variety of reasons, some of which were personal. And if I left them out, I'm not really telling the whole story and I'm glossing over it and I'm just, it's, it's a puff piece. So you have to balance that out while also never losing sight of why am I writing this book? Because this person is very important and historical and significant. And so that really should be my focus is on their significance so it sounds like you've done that. And, and I'd like to kind of like cl close off on that because I want you to tell, uh, tell people the best ways that they could get it, let's say, uh, because I know even in the U.S. and Canada, there are still ways to get it even now for people, right? Even though it's not on Amazon. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So I pushed long and hard because 
I know it would be so popular in the US and Canada in particular. I've worked heavily with the art family and the Billington family in particular. Um, I've built up a great relationship with Ross Art and Bronwyn Billington, so much so that I invited them to to write the forward and afterward respectively, just because they'd, um, they'd contributed so much that I felt like the names almost deserved to be there on the cover alongside mine. Um, really proud to have them involved. And I knew how popular it would be over there. You know, there's a chance that it could end up being more popular there than it was, than it is over here, despite the fact I'm a British author, British publisher. And it was part of the initial inspiration was to bring a story that's more, I think, more indelibly linked with the US and Canada back home a little bit to, to bring it on British Charles. I think it's a lot more forgotten about. Uh, the Bulldogs, especially Tom, uh, a lot more forgotten about over here. And I, I think that's very unfair. I think he's probably one of his finest athletes. Um, and so that was the initial inspiration, despite that, because of the involvement of the art family, the Billiton family in particular, I, um, I can see it being really popular in the US and Canada. So I challenged the publisher and it, it couldn't be done because of, I don't know, political reasons. You'll know uh, what it's like in the book publishing world. They couldn't secure the slot for um, April to, for it to be published in the US and Canada alongside the UK. Uh, I'm very disappointed about that. So I, um, so it's officially released in the US and Canada on the 1st of July, uh, but I've got my own website. This is my third book. So all my books are for sale on my own website. Um, that's stephenbellwrites.com. Uh, so the signed copy is available there, readily available. Uh, and yeah, I, I've already, um, I'm starting to ship some out to the US and Canada as we speak. Uh, and yeah, anybody can go along there uh, and buy a copy uh, if they want to sort of beat the rush for July. That is very exciting. And I hope that people listening to this will do that. So the, the book is Dynamite and Davy: The Explosive Lives of the British Bulldogs. And uh, Stephen, thank you. The author, Stephen Bell, with me today. The uh, Thank you for doing this and, and just talking Bulldogs and British wrestling with me it was it was really enjoyable and enlightening too. I have to say, thank you. No, but, uh, thank you, Brian. That flew by. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we might need another to actually talk about the Bulldogs. <laughs> I know, right? Well, I li- I like it though when conversations go that way. Yeah, yeah, pe- enjoyed People it. are always saying, "I I love your podcast. It's just too short. It's too short." But I, but I like to keep it to the point where like you're actually going, "Wow, there's a lot of other things that we could maybe get to." I'd rather have that than have it be like, oh, my God, yeah, what are we going to talk about yeah. now? Oh, how's your kids? How's your dog? You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you don't want it to become that either. So we will do this again. I will have you again and, and we'll talk. We'll, we'll definitely talk more. We didn't even get to talk about my, my my favorite American crossover British wrestler of all time, which is William Regal who's a, a wonderful man. I would love to talk about him with you. So we'll uh, do that. I, I could happily talk about William Regal. So yeah, <laughs> I'll tell you what, let's, let's do it in July when the book's out in the US and Canada. Perfect. All right. It's a date. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks a lot, Brian. Speak to you soon. There you have it, folks. The United States, the United Kingdom, getting together to talk about our mutual love of professional wrestling. Just two wrestling authors, just talking the talk. And so, of course, if you are interested in learning more about the British Bulldogs and UK wrestling, please do look into getting yourself a copy of Dynamite and Davy: The Explosive Lives of the British Bulldogs. I want to thank Stephen Bell for coming on the show this week. Also want to talk about the episodes that we have to come. As a lot of you know, I'm a writer for Pro Wrestling Illustrated. So 
it gives me a lot of joy to let you know that next week on Shut Up and Wrestle, I'm going to be having a fellow current writer for Pro Wrestling Illustrated. He goes by the name of Righteous Reg. He is a rapper, musician, journalist, wrestling fanatic, and uh, he writes every month in the pages of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, just like I do. So if you read that magazine, then you know his work. And we had a great conversation about 90s wrestling, specifically ECW, but with a little bit of WCW and WWF thrown in there. So if that's your bag, you are going to want to check out next week's episode with Righteous Reg. Got other ones coming. I've been piling up these interviews and saving them. So I've been talking about Brian Greenberg, the co-director of I Like to Hurt People. He's a guest that's going to be coming up soon. Kevin McElvaney, the editor-in-chief of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. That's right. I'm going to all my PWI friends. He's going to be coming up in the weeks to come. And a big one, folks. The man who personifies toughness. A man who I had the pleasure of speaking to on the phone just yesterday to get this conversation done for you, the Shut Up and Wrestle listeners. I'm talking about none other than the Raging Bull, Manny Fernandez. That's right. The Raging Bull himself is coming to Shut Up and Wrestle. There's a connection there with PWI that I'll be explaining on the episode when he is a guest. So please keep listening to this show Check out some of these great conversations that I have in store for you guys. Stick with Shut Up and Wrestle. Uh, Not sure how you're finding it. There's so many different ways to find this podcast. Of course, it's available on Spotify. It's available on Podcast Addict. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find Shut Up and Wrestle. Of course, the book we talked about, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, on sale now in digital form on Amazon, in print form at barnesandnoble.com. I am a monthly writer for Pro Wrestling Illustrated, as I've said, and if you want to pick up copies of that famous, famous and beloved wrestling magazine, go to getpwi.com. The other wrestling magazine that I'm proud to write for is the UK magazine, Inside the Ropes, which you can order online at insidetheropesmagazine.com. And of course, as always, I am the co-host of the PWI podcast with Al Castle, because you know I'm not busy enough. So uh, look up that podcast as well, the official podcast of PWI. Uh, Can't forget the Facebook group, right? So many damn things to plug. If you want to be part of the Shut Up and Wrestle community, join the Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. Other places you can get me personally on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. I can be found on uh, Facebook also at Pro Wrestling FAQ. That's a Facebook page that I maintain that has links to uh, my wrestling uh content that I post, as well as my author webpage. So once again, as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. So long, wrestling fans. 